Are stupid people always going to do stupid things? Coach is in Alabama this week, so you got the Iceman alone this week on Iceman and Coach. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Iceman and Coach. This is Matt Freights, the Iceman. The coach is in the Gulf Coast in Alabama, enjoying himself with his family. So you're going to get an old school monologue episode from me. I hope that you enjoy it. I hope that you are here and you are doing amazing. I just want to remind everybody at the top of the show, if you have a take or you want to call the show and let us know what you think, do not forget to call or text the show. As a matter of fact, that number is area code 703-718-6314. I will say that again, area code 703 703- 0-3-7-1-8-6-3-1-4. We would love to hear from you. And who knows, maybe we'll play one of your takes at the top of the show. Normally, we would start an episode of Iceman and Coach with me and Coach talking about what's going on in our lives. And while that bastard coach is having a beach week with his family, and I really can't fault him too much for that. We're both busy guys. It's nice to get away every now and again and feel like you are relaxing and sort of cutting yourself off from all of the things that ill us in life. It's, it's natural. The life can be very, very complicated. And while life can be very, very complicated. I find myself looking at sports as an escape, but sometimes sports can be a place where stupid things happen in the intersection of Venn diagrams of things that happen in the political space and things that happen in the sports world can't help but marry themselves together. It's just something that's going to happen in the sporting world. And two incidences happened over the weekend that I want to get into. And one of them I want to get into first because I think that both of them differ in some way, but one of them is related to something that Coach and I talked about last week. Now, everybody who is watching on YouTube or listening in the podcasting space, you know we talked about the Oakland A's relocating to Vegas last week. I did get a little bit of crap on the internet talking about how the A's have 30-something days to negotiate with the legislature in Las Vegas. And while that may be the case and that may be factual, I just want to say these organizations are going to get what they want. If the Oakland Athletics want to move to Vegas, they're going to find a way to move to Las Vegas. Oakland is not going to be able to keep them there. It seems as if the organization would like to leave town after a very, very rich history of being there. And it's just going to happen. So while you may know more than I do by reading a newspaper or whatever it is that you do to get your news, it's going to happen. The reality is that the Oakland Athletics will move to Las Vegas and whatever they're called from here on out is up to them. But it's going to happen at some point in the next few seasons. We're going to see the Oakland A's in Las Vegas. And I always say that Las Vegas is going to be the hub or the epicenter of sports pretty soon with everything swirling around sports gambling and everything having to do with that city. It seems as if it's growing at an alarming rate. And whether the infrastructure can handle it is a different thing. But the Oakland A's have been in the news recently, not just for their move to Vegas, but I think they've been in the news for two things. One, being historically bad. Iceman Stat of the Week, I believe it was last week, talked about the fact that the A's were the first organization in MLB history to have 23 or more losses in the month of April. Think about how many years have gone by, decades, centuries have gone by in Major League Baseball, and we've not seen a team quite this bad. So while the city is complaining about this team leaving, the product on the field is certainly not worthy of really Major League play. In my mind, the play on the field is worse than a AAA team, and really they're being outdrawn by almost half of the AAA teams in the league at this point. So it's very, very embarrassing in that regard. And I'm not saying that the players aren't trying. I never want to be the type of guy who dogs a team for not being very good. 
they're only as good as the players that they put out on the field, and those players can only do the best that they can. Ownership clearly wants to get by with not paying high salaries and not having a high payroll, and what you're going to get with that, unless you're the Tampa Bay Rays, is crap on the field. You're going to get a crappy product. It's just the way that it works. Teams like the Pittsburgh Pirates have been basically doing business in this way for many, many years, ever since the 1990s, the early 1990s, when the Andy Van Slykes and the Barry Bonds, they have been nothing short of a laughing stock. And it seems as if the Oakland A's are that team. To compound that fact, their announcer, Glenn Kuyper is his name, made a little bit of a misstep on a broadcast this weekend. And I want to get into that because I think it's very, very important. He and his broadcast colleague, Dallas Braden, who, if you might remember, threw a perfect game for the A's, I don't know, maybe like 10, 15 years ago. That was basically his claim to fame. He really didn't do a whole lot after that. But he's the color guy for the A's announced team with NBC Sports. And Glenn Kuyper, who I believe has been calling A's games for the last 20 years, is talking about the things that they did in whatever city it was that they were visiting. I think they might have been in Kansas City. And he's talking about it. And he's talking about the fact that they went to a museum that is commemorating the Negro Leagues of Baseball. But what happened to Glenn Kuyper was as he was describing his day, he used another N-word with a hard R that many, many people heard, and it was almost impossible not to hear. The broadcast went on, and later in the game, he made some kind of a statement talking about how something came out not right earlier, want to apologize, and so forth. Things have happened since then. He's obviously been taken out of the booth indefinitely. Dallas Braden has been questioned for his his silence, basically. He hasn't really said anything and ha- didn't say anything, didn't react. And I can't say that he should have reacted. It certainly would have definitely made me pause. But if you're on national TV and you are groomed to be a certain way, perhaps he is groomed to not react to those types of things because really these broadcast companies don't want to shine a light on something that negative. The reason I want to get into this is because I've seen two camps on this. I've seen a lot of people defending it because, hey, he slipped in his tongue. And then I've seen a lot of people talking about the fact that you just cannot do that in 2023. I myself fall on the side of you cannot do that in 2023. And honestly, the reason being is because we've just learned a lot more. And I understand that you don't want to condemn somebody for one particular mistake. We all make mistakes in life. We slip of the tongue and all those types of things. I totally get that. As a parent, I find myself swearing in the house and my son is starting to pick up on them. So you want to be a little bit careful with the language that you use. I think many, many people in this country and all over the world would agree on the fact that that particular N-word is a no-go. It doesn't matter how you use it. It doesn't matter whether you slip with it. It is a no-go. And I think when you hear that word, it elicits a response. Me as a white male, it elicits a different response. It gets me angry that anybody would ever use it. For other people, it's more deeply emotional than that. But one of the things I want people to realize is that when Glenn Kuyper slips and uses this word on national television, to me, it is indicative of the fact that he has used that word casually in his personal life. Many of the people that we see on television, whether they're celebrities, whether they're sports figures or announcers, they are human beings and they have lives outside of where we see them. When you see somebody on television, you're seeing what they want to present to you on television. They most likely have some type of an agenda and they want you, the consumer, to believe that they are the way that they are. Tiger Woods is a perfect example of that. Now, he's been in the news for other reasons lately. I'm talking about his initial scandal with Elon and all of the waitresses at wherever the restaurant was that he was. But if I remember, he basically had to have an administrative assistant to be able to keep track of all these women. And when you saw that story, it surprised you because the image that you knew of Tiger Woods was that of a squeaky clean guy. You thought that that was who he was. And really, the life that he was living was not that. 
I'm not condemning Glenn Kuyper of being necessarily a racist because I don't know anything about his personal life. But I do believe that when you use a word that casually, when it slips, and it has never slipped in my lifetime, and I would cop to it if I had, I would apologize to the right people, but never in my wildest dreams would I start saying that word and have it just be casually slipping out, especially not on a broadcast, especially not when I'm doing something that is seen by thousands of people. And honestly, when it slips out, it makes me question how often that word has been used in his life. And also, why has it been used in his life? And while maybe you are listening to this and thinking, why would you condemn him for making a slip up? You have to start asking yourself more deeper questions. Where else is he using this word? How else is he using this word? To whom has he used this word before? During the 2016 election, Donald Trump got a lot of flack for things that he said off a hot mic to somebody in a studio. I can't remember what the guy's name was, but basically that was made or came to light during the election. And a lot of people said that it was locker room talk. And while there is a part of that that is very, very true, there are things that we all say behind closed doors. And if you're looking at me and saying you don't do that, you're totally full of crap because everybody does it. I'm not saying everybody does racist things, but we all say things behind closed doors that we wouldn't necessarily say in certain crowds or have an opinion that we wouldn't necessarily give. For instance, I'm not somebody who's big on the Catholic Church. I'm not going to go step into a Catholic Church and tell everybody that they're full of crap. I'm just not going to do that. Will I do that behind closed doors with other people who are like-minded like myself? Maybe. But I'm not going to do it publicly and embarrass those people and make them feel like what they're doing is not worthy. There are many people in this country that use the N-word and other types of slurs behind closed doors. That's just a fact. And I wonder to myself if Glenn Kuyper is one of those people. I hope that he has learned from this experience, and I hope that the A's have learned from this experience. Remember, a couple years ago, Tom Brenneman made some comments very, very similar. We haven't seen him on television since then. And that was a national broadcast. And if you're a Glenn Kuyper right now, and you're a local regional broadcaster for a team that's basically on its way out the door, you've got to be a little bit scared about your future prospects. And honestly, I think that that's okay. I think what needs to happen, though, is Glenn Kuyper needs to really go back and look at what he has done in his life and find out why a word like this would slip, because it doesn't usually slip for most people unless you have been casually using it. So the A's have had, obviously, a very, very hard time this year with crappy play, the broadcasting stuff being now something that's in the news. They really cannot catch a break. And honestly, I think the clean slate of going to Vegas, whenever it is that that happens, I think it's going to be a good thing for them. And hopefully they'll be able to put a better product on the field and move on from some of these instances. And this year is just going to be a very, very tough year if you are an Oakland Athletics fan. But the other incident that happened, I think, is a little bit different because while I believe that Glenn Kuyper slipped on a national broadcast, I did talk about the fact that he obviously uses that word somewhere else. But the next incident that came up was from a university that I have to admit I am completely biased against, West Virginia University. Bob Huggins is a world-renowned college basketball coach. He is one of the winningest college basketball coaches of all time. He has taken Cincinnati University to big heights, and he's been at West Virginia University for a while, and he's obviously done a lot of winning there. He's not won a national title, but he's done a lot of winning to the tune of being in the same camp as Coach K, Bob Knight, people like that. He was on what I have to believe is a local radio program, and they clearly had a very, very casual relationship because if you listen to the almost two-minute clip, which we're not going to play here, you'll definitely hear that there's a familiarity. There's definitely a camaraderie between these guys. Guys, if you're listening and you have friends that you talk very, very differently with, and that's just the way that guys are, you have that kind of relationship where you can talk about different things, you can rib them, and you know they're going to give it to you back, and it's all good because you're brothers, right? 
And Bob Huggins seemed to have this kind of relationship with these two radio hosts, and they were asking him about his recruiting. And essentially, I'll cut to the chase here, during the broadcast, he and these radio personalities had an exchange that not only talked about trans people that seemed to be very transphobic in a way, but Bob Huggins used a gay slur, an anti-gay slur, while talking very, very casually about some incident that happened a couple of years ago, what have you. I'm obviously not going to repeat that here. The reason why I think this differs a little bit is because Bob Huggins clearly feels a superiority and an invincibility to be able to use these kinds of terms on the radio. It's also very obvious to me that he feels as if by using them this casually that there are no repercussions for it, that he has been around long enough. The institution of Bob Huggins is something that can stand the test of time, and he is going to weather this storm. But here's the thing, folks. In 2023, we cannot be using words like this on television or on the radio. It just cannot happen. If you don't believe in being gay or you don't believe in trans rights or whatever, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you're wrong. You have every single right to believe that or not believe whatever it is that you want. But at the same time, when you are a personality, when you're a celebrity, when you have a public persona, you cannot be using this language so freely. And you can't also think that you're not going to get away with it. Bob Huggins right now is at the tail end of his career. I would actually say that he's becoming almost a dinosaur in college basketball with everything that has changed in the landscape. We're talking NIL, we're talking transfer portal, all the recruiting. Things are far, far different than they were when Bob Huggins started coaching almost 40 years ago. And if you look at guys like Jim Beheim, they are aging out. Jim Beheim is gone. Tom Izzo would tell you that he is close to the end and he doesn't like a lot of the changes that are happening for different reasons. Bob Huggins definitely comes off to me as the curmudgeon old guy that kind of feels like he's superior to all this. And honestly, I think that Bob Huggins now has to face the music of the fact that his career might be over. Because I think if you're West Virginia University and you are listening to this, there's no way that you can keep this guy. Honestly, the casual nature of just how that conversation went down, the way that the radio personalities were sort of egging him on, Bob Huggins is not a novice at this. He knows that he is live on television. He didn't slip of the tongue. He intentionally used the words that he used to have the effect that he wanted it to have. The A's broadcaster didn't do that. He slipped with a word that he has probably used somewhere else, but never in a hundred years had the intention of using that word on a broadcast. Bob Huggins definitely intended to use that, and I think that's where the difference lies. Glenn Kuyper may keep his job. I did say that it's a team that's moving out, so maybe they'll think about a fresh start no matter where they go. But Bob Huggins, on the other hand, I think is a dinosaur. And I think West Virginia University may look at this and think the juice is not really worth the squeeze here. We need to get rid of Bob because we need to stand behind the fact that we do not tolerate this. Now, again, I'm biased against West Virginia University. I do not like the Mountaineers. I do not like the state of West Virginia. And I have my reasons for that. And they stem back from some Virginia Tech days. But I think no matter what state this is from, you have to make the right call here. And I just don't think that you can have a guy who feels so invincible. And Bob Huggins certainly does. And i am be curious to see what happens here. Obviously, he put out a statement. Everybody will put out a statement. But it's in your actions, man. It's not just in your words that come from a publicist and something that happens with PR people. I want to see who the real Bob Huggins is. And I got to tell you, as funny as it is that he doesn't have any time for the halftime interviews and stuff like that, you can get a sense that Bob Huggins is the kind of guy that doesn't feel a lot of this quote-unquote woke stuff. He's definitely not down with being progressive, and I think that that's a problem. And West Virginia University just cannot deal with that. They cannot tolerate it, and Bob Huggins, I think, needs to be shown the door. Because while he does win and he does recruit very, very well, 
he has not won a national championship. I don't think he will win a national championship. And so it's time to move on. And I think that these two stories are indicative of where we are because, again, in 2023, you cannot say either of those words on television, along with a lot of other words that you can't say that are just out of bounds, quite frankly. But I think the nature of how this happened, one guy making a slip, while not a good slip and something that needs to be reprimanded, the other one making a casual reference that was definitely intentional. And I think to me, that is a much, much worse situation. And speaking of things that are racially related, we've talked Deion Sanders here before, and Coach Prime is obviously making a lot of moves at the University of Colorado. He certainly has a lot of hype behind him and I think brings a lot of hope to that university with all the success that he had at Jackson State. Coming to a team that was 1-11 last year, honestly, I think Coach Prime has a very, very high ceiling, but he made some comments after the draft that I think are worth visiting. And he talked about the fact that only one HBCU player was drafted during the seven rounds of the NFL draft. And I want to get into a little bit of the numbers. I've seen this in multiple places, but basically since the 1960s, the number of HBCU players that have been drafted have gone from somewhere in the 160s to one player this past NFL draft in 2023. And when you look at those numbers in a vacuum, they certainly are damning. The NFL seems to not be on the train of looking at HBCUs as seriously as they do these other universities. But I think when you look at the landscape of college football today, I think that there's a lot more baked into that than just they don't want to take players from HBCUs. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of hardworking and very, very talented HBCU players. Myron Flowers is one of those guys. I know a couple of other people who played football while being at an HBCU. And those guys worked their ass off. They had a lot of heart and they were not certainly short on trying and they were not short on all of the intangible things that you need. But I think there is something to the landscape today where it seems very, very top heavy in college football. A lot of the teams like Alabama and Georgia and quite frankly, every team in the SEC is playing almost NFL grade opponents every single week. And the HBCU schools, while very, very good and certainly very, very talented, they aren't doing that. And there has to be something in the scouting. There has to be something in the numbers. And honestly, the product that they have seen on the field with a lot of the players that are in the league or have come through the league in the last 20 or 30 years that would show that the players that come in from HBCUs just are not ready or at the level that the NFL is looking for. And I think Deion Sanders, is his heart is in the right place. And I think that by pointing it out, it is okay to point this out because I think you want to look into it. And a lot of these teams should be looking at these schools because I'm not saying that there's no players that should be drafted, but there certainly seems to be more than one that could make a squad. But one of the factors about the draft that I think isn't talked about enough is not just the numbers of some intangibles. It's not just the numbers of how tall they are, how many tackles did they have, what offense did they play in. There are a lot of things about guys in the NFL that you just cannot measure. And in sports, really. Tom Brady is a prime example of that. If everybody knew what they had in Tom Brady, he'd have been the first overall pick. There's no doubt in my mind of that. You could not measure how hard that guy worked. You could not measure how much he wanted it. You could not measure how personal Tom Brady would take being selected in the sixth round. Pick number 199. He knows every single quarterback that was taken before him. And there are a lot of guys who feel that way. These guys at the HBCUs, you cannot measure how much they want it. Yes, maybe they're not playing the same competition as guys that go to Alabama or Georgia. Maybe they're not playing the kinds of offenses that give them the experience that a lot of these NFL franchises want. But there's a lot of guys that get drafted that totally squander that opportunity. 
And I think when you come from a school like an HBCU, which is already down in the pecking order in the national landscape, because I think that HBCUs aren't given enough credit and enough funding to be able to further what they are furthering. And I think that there is a lot of cultural things that are cultivated at an HBCU that I would never get going to any other school. And I think that a lot of people don't understand that. I don't understand that. But I know, having talked to some people, that that is something that is real. That actually creates something more real and tangible than the NFL could ever create. And those people take that with them wherever they go. There's something that you can't measure about what that does for an individual. And I think the point that Dion is trying to make that I believe is a valid point, give these guys a chance. Don't just assume that they're not going to make it because of where they went to school. If we applied that logic to everything, then a lot of people wouldn't have jobs today because people would look at where they went to college and think, oh, that college doesn't matter. And that's not the case. I know now in my career, I've been there almost 20 years. When I look at a resume, I don't look at where somebody went. I look at what they've done lately. I'm looking at what they are producing and what do I think that they can produce if I bring them on the team. Isn't that what the draft is all about? Isn't that what scouting is all about? How many guys have been drafted in the first or second round and have totally flamed out? Look at all the draft picks that are drafted in the first round and how many of them flame out within years, like a few years in the league. They don't even get that paycheck. They don't get that generational wealth that coach talks about. There is something to be said about that because you cannot measure how much a guy wants it. And you also can't predict how much a guy is going to slack off. Zach Wilson's attitude, and we talked about this last season, is piss poor. He has all the talent in the world, the biggest arm we've seen in a long time. He doesn't have it up here, and he doesn't have it in here. And I'm pointing to my heart for those of you listening. You can't figure that out by just talking to a guy or looking at film or seeing where he played or who he played. It does matter to an extent. When you get that game experience and you've been playing in the college football playoff, that stuff does matter. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it doesn't. But I also think that it can be overblown and overrated because there are a lot of guys that play in the biggest spots and they crumble and they still get an opportunity and they crumble there. And these guys are hungry. You see it in sports like boxing, guys that have nothing to lose. These kids at the HBCUs have nothing to lose in their mind. And I think a lot of them, if given the chance, would surprise. And I think if we see more players drafted, we're going to see more players stick around in the NFL. And that's going to cultivate a new way of doing business, a new paradigm that HBCUs will be seen on the same level as these other schools. And until they're given the chance, we're never going to see it. But that's one thing I want to talk about there, because while Coach Prime gets a lot of flack for leaving an HBCU, I think that his heart is in the right place with these comments. And I think it's just food for thought. I think it's food for thought for a lot of these scouts, food for thought for a lot of these GMs, and honestly, food for thought for you, the fans, because we don't know enough about these guys to really know if they're going to work out. And a lot of these guys that have a lot of heart, you cannot measure that. And you'll never know that by looking at a stat sheet. Speaking of recruits, I want to talk very, very briefly about the big news that came out of college basketball. And I know we talked about Bob Huggins earlier, but I think this is a much more positive story. And I think it's a story that's buzzing and it's going to be the buzz all season next year whenever we get to college basketball later this fall. And LeBron James's son, Bronny, has committed to play at USC in Southern California. That makes a lot of sense to me with LeBron being in L.A. They live out in L.A. He's going to be able to train with LeBron. LeBron's going to be able to go to all of his games and everything. And while on the surface level, that seems to make a lot of sense, one of the things that came to my mind was how often the expectations on the kids of the guy are so, so difficult. Michael Jordan's kids never made it to the NBA. And while Bronny, I think, has a lot brighter of a future than those kids, he has a higher ceiling. They certainly have done a lot of things right with his training, his ascension, and it's great to be able to train with your dad while your dad is playing. And maybe that's one thing that Michael Jordan's kids didn't get. 
However, one of Michael Jordan's kids, Marcus, actually owns Trophy Room, which is a very, very successful sneaker store. So he's doing quite fine for himself off of his father's legacy with Jordan brand. But I think we want to taper expectations on Bronny because obviously he's going to be there probably one year. He's going to play in the NBA and LeBron is going to make some type of a power play to be able to play with his son. And, you know, there's something sort of endearing about that because as a father, you want to be able to share in as many memories with your kid as possible. And really, we'd have to look this up, but how many fathers have played with their sons in the NBA? There's a lot of stories or at least enough stories that make you stand up and pay attention in the in Major League Baseball with the Ripkins and the Griffies and so forth. I don't think that there has been a lot in the NBA. And for one of these players to be the GOAT or almost the GOAT in LeBron James, I mean, it's a pretty cool story. But just because he's highly recruited, just because he's the son of LeBron James does not guarantee that he is going to make a great NBA player. Much like I talked about just a few seconds ago about these HBCU kids, this is the opposite of that spectrum. Because there's a lot of expectations, it doesn't mean that he's going to be able to live up to those standards. And I think the standards are going to be very, very cumbersome or almost an albatross around Bronny's neck because the second he steps on that court, he's going to be expected to be the next coming of LeBron James. What we saw out of LeBron in high school was something that we hadn't seen maybe since Kobe Bryant. And LeBron James was a can't-miss prospect. You knew he was going to go straight to the NBA. This was back when the NBA allowed that kind of thing. If LeBron had gone to college, the expectations would have been super high. And it's not unlike a lot of the guys that have gone before him, like Zion Williamson and players like that. But Bronny is now going to have to live with the fact that LeBron James is his dad and going to all of his games. And now being at USC, there's expectations. When you're in high school, there are some expectations, and I'm not going to say that there aren't. But when you become a collegiate athlete and you're playing at a school that is in a prominent place in the collegiate athletics landscape, there's a lot of expectations. USC is a school that expects to win especially at football and definitely with basketball. And they haven't really won in basketball as much as they have in football. Bronny represents hope. And he's going to have to go out in that court having never stepped on a court like that before. And he's going to have to produce. And people are going to expect him to just come out there and be the guy. And that's a lot to ask of a kid. I know that he's LeBron's son. He obviously has a great coach. But at the same time, he's got to be the one to step up there. And I think it's hard to measure whether he's going to be able to do that. And I think what's going to happen is if he doesn't live up to those expectations soon, we're going to pile on failure on him. And that's not really fair because he hasn't yet been able to reach those potentials and he's not his father. No matter how much he's related, no matter how much we want to put LeBron's talent on him, LeBron is a once in a generation player, especially with his longevity and durability. There's no way that we can predict that Bronny is going to be that. So while he gives a juice to the program and while it's exciting as an outsider right here, let's all taper our expectations on what to expect from Bronny. He may not come in and be lights out. He may not come in and be the leader of that team. He may have a lot of developing to do because he's now going to be on the landscape where he is playing players that are on his level. A lot of these superstars in high school, even if they play at some of the best high schools in the country, they don't necessarily get the best talent around them. They don't necessarily get to play against the toughest opponents. The talent pool becomes much more dense the higher you go. And I think Bronny is going to have to navigate through that. Having his dad helps a lot. I'm not going to say that it doesn't. Playing in a conference without a lot of the glitz and glamour like the ACC or the Big Ten or one of those conferences, that definitely helps too. But once you get to the NCAA tournament, the lights are the brightest they're going to get, and it's one and done. Win and go home, survive in advance, as they say, 
and we'll see what happens with Bronny. I wish him well, of course, and I think that he is going to be good, but I think it's going to take a little bit because it is an adjustment. So while these HBCU players aren't getting the opportunities, Bronny is going to get that opportunity because of who he is, and obviously his talent is going to dictate that as well, but whether he makes the best of it is another story, and I think these are two things to watch in the NFL and the NBA, and you'll be able to check that out here on Iceman and Coach as the college basketball season moves on. Sticking with basketball, the NBA playoffs are taking place. And while we're not going to break that down in full here because we're not really an NBA show, that is going to be safe for Basketball U, which we're hoping to debut at the end of the month, right before the start of the NBA Finals. But there's a series happening right now in the conference quarterfinals with the Suns and the Nuggets. The Nuggets are a very good team. They have one of the best players, if not the best player in the NBA, and Nikola Jokic on their team. The Suns obviously have Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, Chris Paul, and they have had some history in this series. And the history stems from last season and I believe the season before. There has been a lot of fan fighting, and I think there's been a little chippiness with these teams. There was an incident the other night between Nikola Jokic and a fan, and that fan happened to be Suns owner Matt Ishbia, and it was a really, really interesting encounter. Jokic basically shoved the guy. And when you look at it on tape, Jokic doesn't seem to do it on purpose. But again, putting your hands on a fan, ever since the malice in the palace, that has been a very, very taboo subject. The NBA does not want anything to do with that. Honestly, no sports league wants anything to do with that because it's just a bad look. And Matt Ishbia being the owner, he's going to be front and center. He just bought the team not that long ago, trades for Kevin Durant. He's got a lot on the line. He's put a lot of money into this and he wants to win. He wants to be an owner that is successful right out the gate because there is no guarantee of success when you're the owner of a team. There just isn't. Nikola Jokic putting his hands on him, it seemed to me that he wasn't sure who that was. And honestly, how many players can pick out all the owners in a lineup of all the NBA teams? I'm not sure many people even know. And he's one of the newer owners. He's not some guy that's been there forever. This would be a little bit different if it was some other owner that's been very, very vocal. Mark Cuban, for instance, or James Dolan or somebody like that. There's just, to me, there's not a lot of familiarity with the owners in the NBA. So maybe Nikola Jokic didn't know who it was, felt some hands on him and thought it was a fan and said, hey, don't touch me. I think that NBA players have every obligation and right to be able to say that to fans. No matter how you feel about the team and no matter how you feel about the game that is taking place, just because you bought a ticket does not mean that you can do whatever you want at the game. If we were to do that at somebody else's job, it would be considered assault. We can't do that at these games. And while the NBA isn't going to suspend Nicolio because she's going to get fined, I think that that's the right thing to do. But earlier, at least a couple episodes ago, I talked about Draymond Green. The NBA suspends that guy. That has to be a body of work thing. Nikola Jokic is obviously one of the faces of the league. He almost was a three-time MVP, a three-peat MVP. And honestly, I think that they just don't want that kind of publicity. And it's funny how they took the stance of, well, these games are too important to suspend this guy. But they did it to Draymond. I understand that Draymond is an instigator. I understand that he has a lot of history with the league. I just don't think that they're being consistent here because Jokic put his hands on a fan. He put his hands on an owner. And while maybe it wasn't ill-intended, and while maybe it was an honest mistake, he still put his hands on the owner of an NBA franchise. How does that not warrant a suspension, but Draymond does? Again, there are consistency issues here with discipline. That's all that I want to see. I want to see the NBA dole out justice the right way during the NBA playoffs. It's either all or nothing to me. And I think that you have to decide how important are these games and how important is it that we make sure that we're consistent in how we are doling out justice. Nikola Jokic deserves to have been suspended to me because Draymond got suspended. They're not that different. I understand that one of them seems malicious and the other one doesn't. He put his hands on a fan. 
How is that not a finable and suspendable offense? Just because it's game five, just because the Nuggets are the number one seed doesn't mean anything. If that is not something that you're concerned about with Draymond, then I don't understand how you're concerned about it here. It just seems very, very hypocritical by the NBA on this. And I'm just a little bit sad by it because, again, you want to see consistency. Now, Jokic did not win the MVP this year, and there was a big hubbub about a month ago with Kendrick Perkins talking about the fact that the MVP voting was racist and that race came into play when it came to the MVP. And while we're not going to really dive into that, I just want to talk about this for a second, because I think that when it comes to value, everybody sees that differently. When I look at Nikola Jokic, to me, he is doing something in the NBA that we haven't seen for a very, very long time. He is separating himself as one of the greatest big men of all time. He's not quite there yet because he's got to win championships to make that happen. But what he does, the way that his game looks, and the way that he looks is revolutionary. He is not Giannis. He is the anti-Giannis, but he's got that kind of talent. And the other guys that were up for discussion are obviously very, very talented in their own right. Joel Embiid has been a force in the NBA for years, part of Trust the Process. He's excellent. A guy who is that tall who can do all the things that he can do, he is amazing. And he was definitely the cornerstone, the rock of the Sixers this year. And they're on the verge of potentially beating the Boston Celtics to make it to the Eastern Conference Finals, finally doing something with all this talent that they have. But when I think of value, I think about where are these guys in the biggest games? I know a lot of people want to compare, well, when did Joel Embiid play Nikola Jokic and how did those results go? It's not about that. Those one-on-one matchups, while somewhat telling in terms of how did they do against each other, it's a body of work. What is value? Where would the Nuggets be without Nikola Jokic? Nowhere. Where would the 76ers be without Joel Embiid? They might still actually be in the playoffs. If you're not an NBA person, but you know who Nikola Jokic is, please name another Denver Nugget for me. I honestly can't. I know that they have another very talented guard, but I'm saying Nikola Jokic is that team. Joel Embiid is not that team. And while James Harden maybe isn't the same guy that he was five years ago, he's still capable of an MVP effort. There is still a lot of talent on that Sixers team. So it's a little bit different to me. I don't think race has anything to do with it. I think it has to do with which guy is the most valuable to their team. How much of a correlation is their presence and play on the team to their actual winning? And I know that you can be an MVP and be valuable to a losing team because you had such a great season. But in terms of this particular debate, which guy is more valuable? I really don't think it has anything to do with the color of their skin. There are a lot of issues in the NBA and in this entire world where race does come into play. People do use the way that somebody looks to make decisions, and that should never be allowed. I will never stand behind that. But when it comes to something honestly so trivial as the MVP voting, when many, many black men have won the MVP voting, I'm just not sure how Kendrick Perkins is allowed to be able to say these things. But it really speaks to the paradigm of television now, where we are paying people to have the worst possible take on television. And Kendrick Perkins and J.J. Redick and guys like that, they're prime examples of this. ESPN hires a lot of these guys, and they say these things to be able to get sensationalist clicks and get you talking about this. And maybe it's working because we're talking about it here. But it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And while Jokic maybe doesn't look like Joel Embiid and maybe doesn't play like Joel Embiid, there's no denying that he is really, really great. And there's no denying that he is the reason the Nuggets are where they are. And they actually could move on to the next round and be in the conference finals. That's one thing that we always do. When a guy is really, really good coming into the league, we start asking, when's he going to win the big game? How come he can't win the big one? I mean, think about it. We're still doing this with Giannis. 
This year, Giannis was asked if this season was a failure. They just won the NBA title two seasons ago. Nikola Jokic hasn't won anything yet. He's on the verge of getting there. He's taking those steps with that team. And it's because of him. His play is so integral to that team being successful. I truly believe that he's more valuable to his team than Joel Embiid. And if you're looking at it apples to apples, stats to stats, Joel Embiid had a better statistical year than Nikola Jokic did. But I don't think he's nearly as valuable to his team because there have been samples where Joel Embiid is not in the lineups, particularly in the playoffs, and the Sixers have been better. They've actually won. I think that's an indictment on your value. Joel Embiid is incredibly valuable, don't get me wrong. But if you're talking about comparing him to another guy, no matter if it's white, brown, black, purple, red, I don't care what they look like. It's about value. Kendrick Perkins and ESPN missed the mark in that particular conversation. And while I congratulate Joel Embiid on winning the MVP, I think that Jokic is doing something that Embiid is not doing. He's revolutionizing the way that that particular position is played. And maybe he started it, I don't know. But Jokic is doing it so well, the passing, the shooting, the point scoring, it's just, it's amazing. And he looks like my dad's friend, Carl. I've never seen a player look like that and be so good. And it just amazes me. So Nikola Jokic, I think, has a very, very bright future. I do think he should have been suspended in this case. It is what it is. We will check in on the NBA playoffs a little bit later this month. And you know what? I think it's time to have a little bit of fun with a little bit of OTW. OTW of the week, like we do every single week where Coach and I like to have a little bit of fun. Coach is not here, so the Iceman is going to have a little bit of fun with Iceman Stat of the Week. We talked earlier about baseball, and one of my favorite players of all time is Ted Williams. I probably won't be knocked off of that hill. I do believe that he's the best hitter we've ever seen. And while I believe that Babe Ruth and Shohei Otani are the best overall players to ever play the game, I think when it comes to pure hitting, whether it's home runs, average, what have you, Ted Williams is the man. He was just amazing. And this stat is about Ted Williams. In 1941 is when he hit the famous 406. He was the last guy to hit 400. Pretty an amazing feat if you ask me. 1942, he won the Triple Crown, which only has been done one time since Carl Yastrzemski did it, I think, in 1967. So that's not exactly an easy thing to do. 1943, 44, and 45, he fought and was a fighter pilot in World War II. 1946 was his return season. He won the MVP. And then in 1947, he capped it off by winning the Triple Crown. That was losing three years of his life to World War II and not playing a lick of baseball. I think it's safe to say that Ted Williams was amazing. And I think that we don't see guys like that anymore. Guys that are just so productive, guys that are so patient, such good hitters. The game is a lot different today. I think that the evolution of baseball with the pitch clock and everything that's happening, I think we're going to get back to that someday. I don't think you're ever going to see a player like Ted Williams. And quite honestly, it's amazing to see those kinds of stats and to realize that players back then, they gave themselves to causes that were more important than the sport. And today, athletes are overpaid. I mean, I don't think that they're economically overpaid, but I think that they are overpaid up here in the fact that once they see their money, they don't care about a lot of things besides themselves anymore. And maybe that's just the nature of capitalism. 
Ted Williams, though, believed in what the country was going through and nearly gave his life for that endeavor and then came back and casually won an MVP and casually hit for the Triple Crown. So Ted Williams was amazing. And that brings us to the end of the episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. A monologue episode for me. If you've been listening to this since it was Drippin' Sports way back two years ago, this is something that you are used to. I miss having the coach here. We have a great dynamic, and I hope that you find this pretty enjoyable. I know that we enjoy doing it for you. We enjoy bringing you this content, connecting with the audience. The last couple months with the growth on YouTube, it's been wonderful, and we've definitely had some haters. We've had a lot of positive commenters, and so I want to thank you for listening to this show and giving a little bit of time out of your life to watch and listen to this show. Life can move very fast, and we can get so overwhelmed with everything that we have going on, and sometimes each day can just feel like it flies by, flies by. And so the fact that you take however long it is that you take to watch and consume the products that we put out there, it means the world to us. Don't forget to call or text the show. We'd love to hear from you. Area code 703-718-6314. If you want to find us on Twitter, at Iceman and Coaches, the handle to do that. It is the same handle on Instagram if you want to follow us there. Do not forget to support the Pub Time Podcast, where Brad and Ryan are doing a lot of fun things. The Rhythm and Blues series. They just did the Eagles. They're going to do Led Zeppelin. They're going to do the Beach Boys. It's going to be a really fun time. And please, if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, don't forget to hit the follow button. Give us a rating. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Do not forget to support the Matty Ice Media Network where you can find other podcasts like Political Football and Fire Footwear. I hope that this finds you well. I hope that this finds you safe. And as always, we will see you next week. This is Iceman and Coach. The opinions and viewpoints expressed on the Iceman and Coach Sports Show are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. The Iceman and Coach Sports Show is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.